electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Leslie Picker. Kramer and David Faber have the morning off. It is a holiday shortened session this morning on this Christmas Eve. Stocks close at 1 o'clock Eastern time. Futures steady as we watch this multi-layered legislative showdown on the Hill uh, between COVID relief, government funding, and the defense bill. Our roadmap, though, begins with Jack Ma's empire in crisis. While the uh, Alibaba founder is feeling the heat this morning from China's antitrust regulators, And then a possible Brexit deal on Christmas Eve, the latest on those talks between Britain and the EU. And later, how hedge funds are capitalizing off the shift to e-commerce. We'll explain this hour, Carl. All right, guys, we're going to begin with Baba, though. Shares down some 8 percent overnight in Hong Kong as uh, China's uh, appears to be renewing their antitrust probe. Uh, John, it's been remarkable to watch Ma, a 56-year-old former school teacher, go from uh, the golden boy of innovation in that country to now the fall guy as she appears to be recalculating the role of private enterprise. Well, and, you know, she's not the only one. Uh, we in the U.S. are also recalculating that. It'll be uh, very important in 2021 to see the principles in both economies and how the politics and uh, the economic principles sort of collide and develop. Of course, we've been talking all year about the U.S. and how lawmakers and regulators here are dealing with big tech companies. We have several of them over here. Uh, Now, as we look to China, what's happening with Alibaba, let's get to Eunice Yoon in Beijing for more on China's Alibaba probe. Eunice. Thanks so much, John. Well, the country's top market regulator says that it's investigating Alibaba's alleged monopolistic behavior, including a practice known as pick one of two, which is essentially forcing merchants on the sites to work only with Alibaba as opposed to any of its competitors. Now, separate to that, um, Alibaba's or and, and Jack Ma's ant group has been summoned by other regulators to come in for a discussion about fair competition as well as consumer protection. Now, all of this comes after Jack Ma had a fiery speech back in October where he was highly critical of the Beijing um, authorities. In that speech, he suggested that regulations in China should promote, not kill, innovation. Uh, He said that global banking regulators and uh, suggesting that the people who are sitting there in the room um, are part of an old man's club. And uh, he said that Chinese finance can't have systemic risk since essentially China has no system. So um, Jack Ma is known to be flamboyant, uh, very outspoken, critical of the government over years. However, this speech was seen as especially egregious because he has made so much money here. And also, he was just about to become even wealthier with Ant's IPO. And all the while, authorities here 
have been concerned about uh, his consumer loan business and it being too risky and, in fact, posing uh, too many uh, threats to the financial system here. So um, at this point, um, investors and Chinese tech companies have been uh, sp- speaking to me about what the implications could be. Uh, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a kind of a wide split. There are folks who think that this could just be a warning. Uh, we could see that big players are going to uh, face a greater scrutiny, uh, uh, fines. Um, but then also there are people who are concerned that this could eventually lead to some either serious changes to uh, business models here or potentially um, even the end of what's known as the VIE structure um, for that, which allows, it's kind of like a gray area structure, which allows foreign investors to be able to buy into Chinese companies. So um, there is one uh, big reason, though, as to uh, why Beijing wouldn't push too far, and that is that China does still want to have national champions. Uh, One can argue that maybe they don't want the national champions to uh, be privately owned or potentially or not at least uh, be, you know, that, that at least they have to be much more compliant with Beijing. Uh, there was some suggestion in the state media today also that um, China wouldn't push too far. Uh, the People's Daily, which is an official paper, said that the point of this investigation is for better development of the entire online economy. Yeah, Eunice, your perspective so important here. Uh, set me straight here. My perception um, is that in the U.S. we have multiple internet era titans. I mean, you look at the uh, founders of Google. You look uh, at what Microsoft and Apple were able to do coming back in that era. Look across at PayPal and the PayPal mafia, LinkedIn, go on and on and on. My sense is that in China, there is no figure who, who kind of reaches the level of Jack Ma. I, I didn't mention Jeff Bezos here in the U.S., of course I should have. Uh, in China, Jack Ma is head and shoulders above the others, and so this has a different level of significance. Is that right? Um, actually, I wouldn't agree with that. Jack Ma does have oh. an outsized uh, personality, and he actually has a lot of influence, as you, as you rightly pointed out. But what's interesting is that Jack Ma is outspoken and very high profile, which is why the rest of the world knows about him. However, um, as part of the conversations today with a lot of Chinese tech people, they were saying his problem is that he is too high profile and that you see somebody like Pony Ma, who heads up Tencent. We barely ever hear from him. He's impossible to get for an interview. You know, it's just there are other titans. In fact, even with ByteDance and uh, Zhang Yiming, he's notoriously private and shy, at least when it comes to speaking to the media or pretty much anybody else. And so the understanding here is that if you are high profile and you are making a ton of money and you obviously have to have some relationship with the government, probably not be, it's probably not the best to constantly be critical of the hand that feeds you. And so that's the conversation that's been going on here, that uh, one of Jack Ma's problem is, as, as one executive said to me, was that he started to believe that he was invincible to the level of President Xi Jinping. 
Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, be careful with that, uh, Eunice, that's for sure. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if there's any amount of contrition uh, that Jack Ma can show uh, to get back in some better graces. We'll talk more about it all morning, of course. Eunice, thank you, our Eunice Yoon. We'll turn our attention now back to Capitol Hill. As we said, we got a few pots boiling. One, of course, is the president's veto of the Defense Authorization Act. Uh, uh, hasn't been overridden or hasn't been vetoed in 59 years. COVID relief, of course, in question. Uh, the government funding bill. Leslie, you got 12 million Americans whose uh, UI benefits will expire uh, in two days. So this is going to be uh, quite a showdown as both the Democrats and the GOP try various forms of unanimous consent. That's right. And there's some economic data pointing to some plateauing in the recovery uh, from the coronavirus pandemic. Back in spring, we've seen a, a nice churn in a recovery, uh, largely over the summer through the fall. Now that's starting to appear to be really slowing down, especially as you look at personal income, which fell in November, uh, as well as consumer spending, declining for the first time since April. So that adds additional pressure uh, to Congress to really look at what the state is for Americans right now, especially going into the holiday season. As you mentioned, the, the benefits are set to expire. Some of the benefits are set to expire uh, in just a week's time, John. I oppose endless wars, as does Yeah, uh, Leslie, when we look at what the, the markets are doing, look at the futures, it's not as if um, investors seem to be taking this action by President Trump as if it's going to derail the entire process. It, it certainly looks like people are expecting one way or another this is going to get done. But the potential damage, Carl, in the meantime, and it's really unclear what the end game is going to be. The Democrats jumped on this and said, $2,000 sounds great to us. Let's just go ahead and get that done. You're seeing some consternation uh, out of Georgia. Uh, the, the Senate candidates there on the Republican side who are saying, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe we could get to 2000 if we can take some money away from somewhere else. Just a lot of motion around this. Uh, investors, though, don't seem to be worried. I think one. No, uh, there's there is a. Yeah, I was going to say, Leslie, there is a school of thought that this maybe just delays uh, the signing of some kind of funding by a few days. Uh, maybe you got to wait until uh, the president's term ends in 27 days. Uh, but, Leslie, it's remarkable to see not only the showdowns here, but <laughs> meanwhile, Brexit, we're told a deal in the U.K. is uh, somewhat imminent. Uh, the pound's been reacting to that for the past 24 hours. Of course, that deal, it, it does appear, bottom line, that the EU and the U.K. will have a much more distant relationship than people thought when that vote first happened in uh, 2016. Yeah, sterling trading higher on this as well as uh, yields here even in the U.S. on the prospect of a, a finalization of this deal. It goes to show you that the idea of negotiating toward a deadline uh, knows no boundary. It, it crosses the Atlantic as well. Um, but it's, it's fascinating. You know, one of the big sticking points for Brexit has been that over the fisheries, uh, which is just uh, remarkable that they are appearing to come towards some sort of an agreement on that front. Uh, and, you know, potentially we can re retire the word Brexit, uh, at least from our daily vocabulary or, or weekly <laughs> vocabulary uh, here in the near future, which is something at least to look forward to yeah. in 2021. Carl. Oh, my gosh. Feels like we've uh, we've grown up with it uh, in, in some ways. Yeah. Guys, we'll take a break. As we said, we got a shortened session here. Uh, stocks do close at one o'clock. But for the time being, Dow S&P on pace for a negative week. And the Nasdaq does have a small weekly gain, although it uh, came off of that all time high yesterday. We're back in a moment. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom. Right. Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. 
For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Well, we knew it was uh, going to be a long shot, the Democrats' attempt to uh, get these $2,000 direct payments through, direct, uh, through unanimous consent. That has now failed in the House. Uh, Political points out that the House will now adjourn until 2 o'clock on Monday, Leslie. So the first chapter uh, of this uh, response to the president's criticism about the uh, COVID, the omnibus bill, uh, is now over. I would expect expect in this uh, week of limited liquidity, we could see some uh, additional volatility on some of these headlines out of Washington, although it doesn't appear uh, that the markets are reacting in a big way at this point in time. It'll definitely be something that we are watching uh, as the headlines unfold. Uh, Switching gears a bit, the push to ramp up COVID-19 vaccinations rolls on. Meg Terrell joins us with the latest. Hey, Meg. Hey, Leslie. Well, this push does roll on. It is going a little bit more slowly than the very aggressive timelines that Operation Warp Speed had laid out. We learned yesterday about the allocations that will go out next week, about 4.7 million doses in total, uh, 2.7 million from Pfizer and 2 million from Moderna. Uh, Now, that's on top of the almost 8 million that went out this week and almost 3 million that went out next week. That gets us to about 15.5 million doses that will have gone out in December. Uh, Another 4.5 million will go out the following week. So that goal for 20 million people getting their first shot in December will not be met. And in fact, even just getting the 20 million out the door will take into the first week of January. We are also hearing that it's taking a little bit longer than Operation Warp Speed had hoped to actually get those shots in arms. Here are the latest CDC data. Nine and a half million doses of vaccine distributed, only a million shots so far administered. This is as of 9 a.m. yesterday morning. And a lot of caveats to these numbers. The million doses talk about there. Those are only Pfizer's vaccines because there's a lag of about three to four days on these data. So they're not even taking into account the Moderna vaccinations as well. So those should start to catch up. But there are other reasons why we're seeing this go a little bit more slowly. Nursing homes, for example, only 12 states currently are administering shots in nursing homes so far. We learned from Operation Warp Speed yesterday. Uh, That'll increase by another 13 states next week. So about half the states should be getting up and running uh, in the nursing homes. So remember, those are priority groups for these vaccines. So they're getting allocations uh, and they will start to administer the shots more. So we should see these numbers start to tick up, uh, going a little bit more slowly than I think a lot of people expected, at least at the very beginning. Guys. Hey, Meg, uh, Reuters points out to reach that 20 million goal for the month, you'd have to do 2 million a day for the next eight, nine days. That includes Christmas Day. Is that possible? No. (laughs) 
Um, you know, there is a data lag, uh, but it, we're not going to hit 20 million doses administered in December. I mean, Operation Warp Speed has conceded that that goal won't be met. Uh, we're going to see, you know, that first week of January get the catch up in terms of administering those or distributing those doses. And then how fast we can administer, we're going to start to see the cadence get set over the next few weeks. But it's been a little bit of a clunky rollout. I mean, these these shots are a little bit, you know, more uh, clunky to administer when you have to watch people for so long after you administer them. Yes. Yes. Uh, Meg, thanks for that. It's a great place to start with our next guest uh, who uh, runs the nation's largest not-for-profit hospital system, 93 hospitals across the country. Uh, Trinity Health CEO Michael Slabowski joins us this morning. Mike, oh, thanks for the time. Good, Good to see you. Good morning. It's an honor to be with you. At this stage, it's so early, uh, just to, basically we're a couple of weeks in. Should we be drawing broad conclusions or feeling various emotions about the progress of administration so far? Well, we're, we're obviously very hopeful and excited. I mean, this is a real morale booster for our caregivers in particular to know that uh, there's some level of safety coming for them and their families. So as of yesterday, across Trinity Health from, you know, in our hospitals and nursing homes are from uh, Fresno, California to Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, about 14,000 people uh, received the vaccine, about 9,000 of our colleagues, we call our employees colleagues, and then some first responders as well. Um, but it's it's a very uh, hopeful and exciting uh, situation, and we'll take the vaccine as fast as it comes. We've heard that from a few other uh, hospital chiefs in the past couple of days. That is, uh, you bring us more supply, we have the infrastructure, the logistics, the labor uh, to get them into arms even faster than we are right now. You'd go along with that. Absolutely. Uh, our people are jazzed and ready, and, uh, you know, everyone who's uh, had any experience uh, safely administering vaccines is ready to go. Michael, I'm already hearing anecdotally about uh, some hospitals in some local areas that are getting more vaccine than they need. You're saying, though, that you'll take it uh, as quickly as it comes. Are you hearing about kind of differences in the amount of vaccine that's being sent versus what's needed in various areas? And if that balance gets corrected, do you think that could speed up the administration of these vaccines? Sure. Well, in our, in our situation, we have not had a situation where there has been more vaccine uh, provided than, you know, we can accommodate. We'll, we'll take every, you know, vaccine that we can get right now. And our colleagues are very anxious and our physicians and uh, anybody who's close to the patient, whether it's a nurse, respiratory therapist, our housekeepers, um, our, our unit aides, um, people in our clinics, uh, they're all very anxious to be vaccinated. That group of people, Michael, that you just outlined, are you mandating that they take the vaccine uh, as well as in the future down the road? Would you mandate that all of your employees have the vaccine? The reason I ask is there are a lot of CEOs out there kind of grappling with this question of whether to mandate uh, their workforce be actually vaccinated. So we'd love to hear uh, your perspective on that, especially uh, given your role on the front lines. Sure. We are not mandating vaccination for our colleagues at this time. You know, people need to be comfortable. And I think, you know, folks need to see uh, the experience with the 
the vaccine. And so we're very respectful of that. I can tell you that when my turn comes, I will absolutely be in line to have the vaccine because I am confident that it is safe. But uh, right now it's for all of our frontline caregivers and our support personnel that we're supporting. And, and again, there's enough people willing uh, to take the vaccine right now that we're not running into circumstances of people turning it down. Um, obviously, we're hoping to see the positive effects of, of widespread vaccination as soon as possible. In the meantime, though, if you strip out California, I know that's a big if, but if you were to strip out California, there are signs that the daily caseload has been slowing for the next couple of weeks. I wonder at what point do you think we would be able to say the pressure is really coming off of the nation's health system? Sure. Well, it, it varies by community and across our 22 states. For example, I was looking at the data this morning from yesterday in upstate New York. Our facilities have experienced an increase. Some other of, of our communities are leveling off a little bit. But I think our biggest concern is this next few weeks with everyone traveling. I mean, over the weekend, there was, you know, three million travelers on airlines. Um, so, you know, the concern is the next surge after the, the upcoming holiday period. And we're monitoring that very, very closely. And uh, we have, you know, PPE and equipment, and um, we do have some therapies to support people. But now the challenge is really our, care, our caregivers, having enough caregivers to support it. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard that from some of your other um, CEOs that have been on as well. Yeah, no, no, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I don't know. A couple steps forward, one step back. Uh, eventually, hopefully, Michael, there's progress. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful holiday weekend. Thank you. Uh, Michael Slabowski of Trinity Health. We'll take a break here. Obviously, a lot to get to, get to as the market has a shortened day. And we'll talk about what investors might be bracing for in the week that we have left in this, new, in this uh, 2020. Back in a minute. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Keep your eye on Square today. Uh, this report out of Bloomberg saying that uh, the company has discussed acquiring John Jay-Z's title service. Um, Lucas Shaw is a very good reporter over there and sort of frames the whole issue as Dorsey's vision of Square being a collection of various businesses, not necessarily payment related under one big corporate umbrella. Yeah, you know who else has a vision of a collection of various businesses under a corporate umbrella? Jay-Z, 
who owns Tidal. I mean, you think about what he's done with Rock Nation, whether it is sports management, whether it's the fashion stuff that he's been into, of course, music. Yeah, we just had uh, Frank Holland uh, talking about his move into cannabis. I mean, th there are very few cultural forces like Jay-Z when you consider his kind of billionaire status, you know, uh, also his just celebrity firepower, his brand firepower, an association that Square can get there beyond a transaction for title, which, I mean, come on, are you really going to compete uh, with Spotify and Apple Music <laughs> yeah. and Amazon at this stage? But if they can get, Leslie, some of that brand power into Cash App and the crypto business that they're stepping into, that could be powerful. Is that what it is? Because I was trying to wrap my head around what Square would actually do with Tidal. It just seems so in opposition to what Square does um, at its core. But I guess, I guess that makes sense, you know, from a branding standpoint. But, you know, Square obviously coming at this from a position of massive strength, Carl. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. Obviously, Square is going to be enjoying a pretty decent tape uh, on this uh, final day of a holiday-shortened week. There's the opening bell and a look at the NYSC and the NASDAQ. Leslie, it does sort of remind you of some of the other stories that have been uh, bubbling up this week about the anticipated explosion in corporate M&A, or at least corporate M&A discussion going into the new year as companies see beyond the, vac uh, see beyond the pandemic, uh, the effects of the vaccine, and try to put this mountain of cash to work. That's exactly right. All of the tailwinds should be in place for a massive M&A year. People are predicting we could see a wave that's greater than some of the, the, the waves that we've seen in, in financial history, especially in recent years. If you combine this idea of low interest rates, making it cheaper to finance deals, you've got this pent up demand from a year filled with uncertainty, whether it's from the pandemic, whether it's from the election. Uh, and then you also have this this idea of, you know, certain sectors that have proven to be, you know, perhaps in more distress during the pandemic, may seek to combine in order to extract synergies, in order to, uh, you know, help build their strength in 2021. And then on the other side of that pendulum, you have companies that have just benefited tremendously in the pandemic, have these huge cash hoards that they then uh, will seek to potentially put to work, John. I, I mean, I would expect that is certainly the case uh, in the tech sector. Yeah, and we're talking about M&A, but also there's just this question of exits and how they're going to happen. We've been talking all month about the IPO market. We were talking just yesterday. You were pointing out these questions about how this sort of enhanced direct listing might work. I mean, heading into 2021, just so many interesting ways that businesses are trying to structure themselves, position themselves for further growth coming out of a span where they've just been given, in a lot of cases, enormous valuations, whether it's in the private market or in the public market. I think that's absolutely true. And that's one of the big concerns as people are looking, uh, you know, toward the end of the year. Are these valuations stretched? People turn to the IPO market. We hear it time and again on our air and they look at these companies. Some of them, uh, you know, there are multiples at this stage in the game. Uh, people are starting to get nervous. There was a, an article uh, in Market Watch just yesterday saying that, you know, this Christmas Wall Street is partying like it's 1999. We keep hearing whether it's in the SPAC market, uh, whether it's in other pockets of the market, I mentioned IPOs as well, uh, that people are starting to get a little bit nervous. They're wondering if, you know, what is kind of the, the support moving forward for a lot of these companies um, and the, the levels that they're trading uh, at this stage in the game, Carl. 
Yeah, uh, we're going to talk to Dan Primack of Axios later this morning about uh, the wave of SPAC filings for IPOs that we've seen really just in the past 48, 72 hours, Leslie. It's pretty astounding. But I wonder, I mean, to the degree that we're going to get a, a big test uh, or a stress test of the legitimacy and viability of the SPAC model long term, mm-hmm. I mean, is that a, that's, is that a Q1 story? I absolutely think it's a Q1 story because the way that these things are structured is you have usually two years to complete a deal. The problem is we've seen more than $70 billion worth of assets raised this year. Just yesterday, uh, there was a $1.5 billion SPAC file, the Spinning Eagle Acquisition Company, uh, which has kind of a unique structure because what they say is that if we don't use that entire $1.5 billion proceeds in the deal that we find, we can basically take the rest of it, spin it out into a new SPAC, which will then seek another deal. The point here is that we have all of this capital chasing you know, a, a select supply of deals that would actually be um, acceptable to be taken public in a SPAC. You know, there are only so many companies that you can really go this route. And if you have these multi-billion dollar SPACs, uh, you're looking for really, really big companies uh, to take public. I think Goldman Sachs estimated that there's about $300 billion in enterprise value that could be taken public uh, through these things. And so uh, what could happen is you start to see, you know, perhaps shady due diligence, uh, some issues on that front, and and deals that the market starts to really sour on, that could be one way that this market closes, John. (laughs) You know, I I have to mention, I see Alibaba, which we were talking about before the open, down more than 11.5%. That's a bit more uh, than than it was... um, you know, indicating before the market opened. We, we know why that is. I'm also looking at some other Chinese stocks that trade over here. You know, Tencent down a little less than 2%. JD, uh, about the same uh, area. Pinduoduo down about one5 uh, Baidu uh, down uh, also about one5 So it's interesting to see that this Alibaba uh, situation seems to be affecting just Alibaba in an outside way, not yeah. as much the others. One wonders whether, Carl, uh, the others benefit somewhat from a focus on Alibaba's power or if investors are just going to back away from all of these Chinese tech stocks in general. Well, I think it's, it's exactly the right point, John. Uh, I noticed a moment ago, uh, Chamath Palihapitiya tweets that he says, Xi versus Ma is eerily reminiscent of Putin versus Kordakovsky, referencing mm-hmm. Russia's prior uh, struggles with dealing with private enterprise. But I wonder, John, if you think this is really just a story about Ant Financial being in every corner of the Chinese economy. I, you know, I, I defer, on, as on all of these things, to Eunice Yoon on this because she's just so smart. Uh, about not only what's happening in China in the context, but also is very aware of what's happening here. And it certainly seems like there's this pattern of expectation that Chinese business and Chinese entrepreneurs look to the government uh, as being the source of largesse and who they have to to kind of kowtow to, Leslie. And it's so different from in America, where you, the, the mindset when it comes to business is that business and private enterprise is what powers the economy. 
And, you know, the, the general narrative that we tend to hear is that, boy, the government needs to be happy that we have this freedom and this private enterprise here. We talk about job creators and we can disagree about the value of capital versus labor in this situation, but a very different take than what we see in China, where if you're an entrepreneur, doesn't matter how successful you've been, you're supposed to know your place and bow to the government. Right. Well, you can see that just in the stock price reaction, right? I mean, China comes after uh, Alibaba saying that it is a potential, you know, potentially engaging in uh, monopolistic activities. That stock's down 12%. We have a multitude of antitrust-related probes at Google and Facebook. Those stocks, I mean, relatively speaking, barely move on that. And as you can see here, one of the reasons that Alibaba tends to have these exacerbated moves uh, is the fact that it has a very high concentration of hedge fund ownership. You can see there it's number four in Goldman Sachs's list of, uh, of VIP hedge fund stocks or, or uh, stocks that tend to show up more frequently uh, in hedge funds top 10 holdings. That's important for a few reasons. Number one, hedge funds are actually levered, uh, you know, at or near record highs this year. So there is an excess amount of exposure to some of those top names. So when you do see a negative headline that is concerning to people, that stock tends to fall in an exacerbated move, partially because of that leverage. Also, the fact that as Eunice was mentioning earlier, the risks involved with foreign ownership of Chinese names, uh, that, that spooks people. So when you start to see the potential for those VIE structures to go away, uh, additionally fines, uh, China's anti-monopoly law allows for a maximum fine of about 10 percent of last 12 months sales. That could be billions of dollars in fines for Alibaba. All of those things are very concerning for U.S. investors, Carl. Guys, we'll keep an eye on that, uh, along with some other movers that we're, uh, that we're going to watch this hour. In the meantime, though, check in with Rick Santelli on this Thursday morning, on this Christmas Eve. Hey, Rick. Good morning, Carl. And, the, you know, there's a lot of stories out. There's movement on the deal with regard to Brexit, even though pretty much we know Brexit's going to occur. It's just a matter of the details and, you know, how nasty it ultimately is going to be. And the other big story, of course, is uh, President Trump and the issue regarding those checks. Now, they don't seem to have had a huge effect on the market. Many markets around the world are closed. Look at a one week of treasuries on the 10-year note yield. You can see it starts on Friday where we close at 95 basis points. We're not that much change. We really haven't had a huge range, although volume's been pretty good considering it's a holiday time. If you open the chart up to one month, what you'll see is we're concentrating on one area, and that's early December's 97 basis point close for 10s. That would be 173, 174 for 30s. We close above those levels. You start to trade at levels we haven't seen since pre-COVID, and that would be considered a breakout. Now, back to the foreign exchange, you know, the British pound, everybody's looking at the pound today, and there's some nuance to this. Now, if you look at a one week of the pound versus dollar and the pound versus euro, some things really should jump out at you there. The first of course, is, and I'm sorry, that's the dollar chart for the one week, is that we're only a half a cent away from the 31-month low close. We look at the one month of the currencies, you see that the pound is definitely doing better against the dollar for one month, but it's not doing better against the euro. And when you open the chart up to pre-vag Brexit vote, which was June of 16, this says the story. Against the dollar, the pound's still down over 5%. Against the euro, its new partner with the little glitch there, it's down almost 12%. Carl, back to you, and Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. 
Same to you, Rick. Uh, thank you, uh, Rick Santelli. Uh, we're right about uh, at Dow, break even for the week. Let's get to Bob Bassani as well. Hey, Bob. Exactly right, Carl. We're down about 0.2%, sort of a, a flattish open, I'd say, about even on the advanced decline line. Let's take a look at the major movers. Uh, once again, semiconductors lead, but that's been the lead story all year, frankly. Semi, the SMH, that's up about 50% this year. There's your big story. Everything is using semiconductors in one way or another. Industrials flattish, had a good run, has flattened out a little bit. Consumer staple hasn't been doing much. Banks have had a nice run on the yield curve steepening and on some of those uh, announcements on Friday on bank buybacks, uh, flattish today, as you can see. As for the mega cap stocks, they're starting to split. They don't go up the same way or down the same way the way they used to. Apple's what has had a four-month high just recently. Microsoft's been holding up well. Amazon, nothing. That Amazon's been flat for months now. Uh, uh, Alphabet has been in a downtrend for a little while up a bit today here. Facebook was at a two-month low a day or so ago. So these stocks are not acting in concert anymore. Uh, some of it obviously due to some regulatory pressures. Uh, of course, the things moving the market, smooth vaccine rollout is the, uh, the hope for that. Main animator of the market, hopes for additional stimulus. Remember, as my friends, the trading community keep reminding me, the big stimulus program is not the fiscal stimulus that $900 billion we're hoping for. It's really the Fed stimulus. I keep getting comments from the trading community, Bob, you're not emphasizing uh, the Federal Reserve's role enough here. And it's true. That program they've got, what have they bought, $3 trillion so far this year, somewhere around there? Their balance sheet's gone from 4 to $7 trillion. 2021, they're going to buy $120 billion a year uh, of uh, uh, of additional fiscal stimulus that's going to be happening for them, uh, treasury bonds, mortgage-backed securities. So keep an eye on that. That's the main thing moving the markets here. Uh, Leslie was talking about Alibaba. I think the big thing about Alibaba is, remember, it was 315 just when he was making those comments critical of the Chinese government in October. And you see it's down about 30% since then. But JDCom, Baidu, the rest of the China market's been holding up well. In fact, China's been one of the best performing markets in the world. The thing you want to own here is MCHI. This is the broadest way to own China. It owns Hong Kong stocks, it owns mainland China stocks, and it owns stocks listed in the U.S. like Alibaba. That's up 25% this year. It's one of the best performing indexes in the world, and that's because of the rapid turnaround in the Chinese economy that they've seen over there. Finally, uh, the Santa Claus rally. This is one of Wall Street's favorite old saws. It is the tendency of the market to rise in the last five days of the year, the first two days of the new year. The tendency uh, historically is to go up 1.3% in this period. Traders love this because it's easy to play against. The problem is it doesn't work that well much anymore, uh, Leslie, primarily because I think a lot of people have just figured out ways to play it very easily. And if you think about it, Leslie, efficient markets, these kinds of things can be arbitraged out eventually. <laughs> and you see it hasn't worked very well for the last five years. Maybe it's, it's, you. it's the Grinch sell-off, perhaps. We should start calling it that. Uh, Bob, thank you. <laughs> when we return, how hedge funds are capitalizing on the shift to e-commerce. Squawk on the Street, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. The pandemic has ushered in a huge shift in where and how people spend their money. The where is often online. The how, well, increasingly it's cashless. And this has been to the benefit of hedge funds and other investors that mine through specialized data sources for insights on consumer behavior. Cash, of course, is hard to track. Electronic transactions, or most notably anonymized credit and debit card data, provide for more robust intel, according to Mike Morali of M Science. His firm tracks and analyzes alternative data sets for investors and corporations. As people go digital, as more people go online, as people go more cash less, 
that helps our cause with in, in no uncertain means. It, 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 it's, it's kind of the thing we've been waiting for for years. Um, it's filling a lot of holes in our data, a lot of gaps previously that, that existed uh, as a result of cash transactions. Um, so it's giving our, our, our clients a more holistic view into the, the consumer economy. The buy side is expected to spend billions on alternative data this year, an increasingly popular channel for hedge funds looking to find insights that can help them generate alpha, especially amid the disintermediation caused by the pandemic. Now, many equity-focused hedge funds are indeed beating the market this year with technology, healthcare, energy, and multi-strategy funds all on pace to outperform in 2020, guys. Well, Leslie... This makes me think about this controversy between Apple and most notably Facebook, mm-hmm. but the uh, ad, digital ad community in general about Apple's moves in its operating system to limit the ability of companies to track you without your consent. Given that hedge funds are getting so much more access to richer data here, mm-hmm. you have to wonder if they were able to connect that to other data that personalizes it, that gives more information on you, how powerful would that be and how important might it be for companies like Apple to give people a choice where they want to be tracked that way? Right. There is this big push and pull because obviously the less uh, de-identifying the data is, the more valuable it is for an investor, right? If you can really pinpoint uh, much more specificity with regard to consumer spending and other aspects of the market, that's going to be a lot more valuable for you. On the other hand, of course, that that gets into this gray area of privacy rules, uh, which have so far been able to, you know, maintain that that these anonymized data sets are are ensuring privacy. Uh, But there are certainly ongoing cases looking at this. And I can expect in 2021 we will see a lot more on this front, Carl. That's fascinating. Uh, Leslie, we'll, we'll watch that with your help. In the meantime, the wires do say that the U.K. and the E.U. have reached a provisional post-Brexit trade deal uh, to avert that last-minute uh, no-deal split. Dow's up 24. When we come back, we'll take a, the best, take a look at the best-performing sector so far this quarter and how you might play it in the new year. Don't go away. The energy sector pulling back today, but still the top performer in the fourth quarter, trying to bounce back from a rough year. Will the rebound, though, continue in 2021? Let's ask an expert. Joining us now, Peter McNally, Third Bridge Global Sector Lead for Industrials, Materials and Energy. Peter, thank you uh, for being here. So clearly a remarkable performance in energy as of late. But are there more tailwinds or headwinds uh, that you expect to see moving into 2021? Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Um, look, it has been a great quarter, but let's step back and have some perspective. It's been a rough decade. There's only one S&P 500 energy company that has outperformed, and that's Valero Energy, and that stock's down 40% this year. So there was a catch-up that maybe was due here, and there have been three main drivers for it. The oil price has recovered. Uh, the economy is starting to recover. And there's been a lot of corporate activity in terms of M&A and restructuring that is you know, helping lift some sentiment. Can those things continue in 2021? Yes. You know, we do have some concerns here about the oil price in the short term, but our experts mainly point to OPEC and how they can manage supply back coming back into the market. Um, it's not so much on demand. Demand we do see coming back and sort of the, the peak hype of this idea of peak demand was in the third quarter. We don't think that's going to happen, uh, or at least not in the near term. I mean, some companies like BP hit are betting that it, that 
peak demand for oil has already occurred, and they're going to allow production to decline materially over the next decade. But it goes to the fundamental problem of this sector is that there's just not enough investment going in, you know, and that's how this rally can continue. M&A. Oh, sorry. Investment from who? Uh, Investment from from the buy side or investment from the actual companies? Uh, From the actual companies. I mean, if you look at, let's take ExxonMobil, for example, the the low end of their spending, you know, uh, in 2021 could be $16 billion. Like, that's not even Twitter's revenues over the last five years. Yet that's half of what they were planning on doing last year. Um, So, you know, this underinvestment could lead to limited supplies outside of OPEC. And demand, you know, we have seen it is coming back. It's not all the way back, which is the, you know, is the encouraging thing and that prices have recovered. But demand, you know, still isn't back to 2019 levels like we see in, you know, in other industries that have quickly snapped back. Oil hasn't done that just yet. Peter, when you look at the the write downs of the past several months, uh, obviously the slashing of CapEx. Is 2021 going to be the year where dividends come into uh, sharper, under sharper threat? Um, I mean, for the major oils, they certainly have been for some time, right? I mean, Shell cut its dividend for the first time since World War II this year. Now they've started to lift it. You know, again, BP has cut their dividend to invest more in, in alternatives. You know, so here in the U.S., we're looking more at Chevron and Exxon, um, Chevron, you know, at least to us, looks comfortable. Exxon's going to get a lot of questions, but they are addressing it through, you know, through spending cuts and more efficiency. And look, there is, there is a could improve uh, the outlook for a company like Exxon. I mean, this, this is a business that every billion dollars net from their chemicals business alone. So. Right. And that start the wheels started to come off there during 2019. If that starts to catch up, you know, there's certainly an opportunity for, for a bit more stability in the Exxon dividend, or at least the perception of the stability of that dividend. And then, of course, there's the uh, the big activist uh, proxy fight at Exxon that we have to uh, you know track and follow and potentially uh, you know see some movement there in 2021. Peter, thank you so much, and happy holidays to you. Same to you. Over to you, Carl. All right, Leslie, and we appreciate the assist from you. Uh, We'll see you later, Leslie Picker. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.